Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40 Minute Mentor episode, I'm joined by the incredible Aaron Gelbard, founder and CEO of the rocket ship flower delivery scale-up, Bloom and Wild. Founded in 2013, Bloom and Wild has reinvented the flower delivery and gifting industry. Using cutting-edge tech and predictive analytics, innovative design, and guaranteeing the best quality and value for money as their flowers are sourced directly from growers. Their success has led them to recently securing a $100 million Series D funding round from top VCs, which will help them hire more talent, expand their international footprint, and launch new propositions and partnerships, like a recent one with Sainsbury's. A big part of Bloom and Wild's success is down to Aaron's entrepreneurial spirit. He spotted a gap in the market, took the lessons he learned from his experience as a consultant in Silicon Valley, and he applied them to the floristry industry. Talking to Aaron about building a disruptive business from the ground up was a real treat. He's not afraid to share the important lessons he's learned and the mistakes he's made, and his ethos of building a business which is fueled by kindness is truly inspiring. We cover some great topics in today's episode, including the importance of being able to communicate clearly and effectively when you're pitching to investors and also engaging with customers how listening to feedback, both good and bad, is so crucial to building a successful brand. And we discuss Bloom and Wild's thoughtful marketing movement, a marketing campaign with the sensitivity of its customers at the core. So whether you're a loyal customer like me and keen to hear about Bloom and Wild's incredible growth story, or maybe you're an entrepreneur just starting out like Aaron was eight years ago, or perhaps you're looking at how you can take your business to the next level, This episode is packed full of inspiring advice and brilliant insights. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the fantastic Aaron Gelbard. Aaron, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to have you here today. And we always like to kick off our episodes with a 30 second overview of your CV, if you don't mind. Of course, I was born in France and then moved to London uh, when I was five, grew up here and um, went to Oxford for university, studied uh, French and German there. And that gave me the chance to have a year working in Paris, which was uh, awesome, uh, introduced me to the world of work. I then uh, got my first job working at a consulting firm called OCNC, spent three years there working mainly with retail consumer and tech companies, went to business school at Harvard for two years then returned to the UK and spent another four years um, working at Bain, uh, both in London and Silicon Valley, again with retail consumer and tech clients. And then I co-founded Bloom and Wild in early 2013, so eight years ago now. Wonderful. Uh, and what a career. I can't wait to unpack that over the course of the conversation. And as a personally a very big fan of Bloom and Wild, I'm, I'm really excited to explore uh, the journey and, and hear how you've scaled it. But um, wanted to start a, a little bit earlier in your life and career. You come from a long line of entrepreneurs. I read that both your father and grandfather were self-made businessmen. So w- was setting up and running a business, was that always an aspiration for you? 
Yes, and but with a caveat. So both my granddads were entrepreneurs, and my my dad uh, still is. Uh, my so I guess from that perspective, uh, it was always something that was on the radar for me. But my dad's had um, his ups and downs as an entrepreneur, and so I've really sort of seen both sides of it um, growing up. Both um, you know, how it can go when it works out, but also how it can go when it isn't working out. And um, he's definitely gone through uh, difficult periods, um, you know, over my formative years. And I think as a result of that, I both wanted to be an entrepreneur, but also wasn't the kind of person that was going to drop out of um, uni and dive into it right away. I felt like it was important to get a good education, get good uh, professional training and and just have that safety net that I could fall back into if it didn't work because I'd, uh, I'd seen both sides of it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective, actually, because the startup world is, is obviously a very aspirational place to be. It's very sexy. We hear all the, the unicorn stories, but the, the reality is, as you know, and I know that the startup life is very tough. And uh, I think having seen that firsthand early on in your life has, has probably helped put that in perspective. So, Aaron, you obviously worked as a consultant at OCNC and, and Bain before, as you mentioned, and we've seen lots of very successful entrepreneurs sort of start on that path. What are some of the skills that you gained as a consultant that have helped you to become the entrepreneur you are today? I think the first few years in consulting are just brilliant general business training. And actually, a lot of the things that you learn are quite domain unspecific, but really useful. You know how to work hard, prioritize under pressure, attend meetings properly, participate, uh, make slides, do spreadsheets, um, you know, write emails in a sort of structured way, all of which sound like quite basic things, but they're, you know, the things I certainly didn't learn doing a French and German degree. And um, they're things that are helpful in, you know, in any walk of life. I think in the early days of uh, startup life, they were particularly useful. It's phenomenally hard work. There are so many competing priorities and just being organized, disciplined, focused is really valuable. And um, it's also really important to know how to communicate clearly and effectively, you know, as you try to pitch what you're doing to customers, investors, suppliers, etc. And some of those uh, communication communication skills, both written and verbal, turned out to be really important. Yeah, yeah, I, I can completely see that. And, and, and we've seen so many people make that successful transition. I know it's not for everyone, but uh, it's clearly helped you on your path. And I'm sure there'll be consultants listening uh, wanting to follow suit. Bloom and Wild is interesting in a way because it, it wasn't just your first entrepreneurial venture, but it was also your first foray into the flower delivery market. So what was it about this specific category that, that interested you? And can you tell our listeners a bit about what the business does if they haven't come across it? Of course. So just on the what Bloom and Wild does, Bloom and Wild is an online uh, flower service that allows people to send and receive flowers anywhere in the UK and now also Germany, Austria, France and Ireland. And we are different to other flower companies in a few ways. We allow people to send flowers that are delivered through the letterbox, which was an innovation that we came up with, which has become really popular. We source direct from growers, so we can offer great prices and great vase life, which are really important in our category. And we reduce our environmental impact uh, through doing that, which is really important to us as well. We have built out uh, bespoke technology for our category, which means we offer a really seamless uh, experience for customers on mobile and web and a 
bespoke uh, operational process behind the scenes that has meant that we've been able to scale really efficiently and accurately. And finally, we've tried to invest in a brand that people love and that means something to people. People send flowers because they want to convey an emotion. And if they're trusting us to do so, then we want both the sender and recipient to feel brilliant about themselves. And in our Care Wildly brand platform that we've been developing uh, is all about that. We can talk about that a bit more later. In terms of why I got into the flower business, I guess there are a few things from a sort of hard skills perspective, I'd worked with retail consumer and tech businesses for some time. And so I became interested in e-commerce and direct to consumer brands, which felt like they were at the intersect of those spaces. And so was, it was an area that I was interested in. I'd spent some time when I was at Bain working in the US and a number of the first generation of D2C brands were popping up around then. And I thought um, they were interesting and and inspiring um, and really reinventing categories. And that's where I first learned about um, brands like Warby Parker, for example, which I followed over the years. That's one side of it. The the second part is uh, I was really interested in the concept of sending things through the letterbox. A friend of mine from university, uh, Anthony Fletcher, has uh, run uh, or ran Gray's, the snack box company for a long time, which I was a customer and a fan of and thought the business model was really interesting. And it made me wonder about sending other things through the letterbox. And then I turned to flowers. I'd had disappointing experiences myself sending flowers. But perhaps more importantly, I'm a person that's really driven by feedback and, uh, you know, what people think about me, both good and bad. And, uh, you know, that was what drove me to try and do well at school and um, and university and, and in my first couple of jobs. But eventually it became a little bit unfulfilling and I wanted to have a career where I'd really live and die by the feedback that I and my team got at a large scale. And that attracted me to the flower industry where people are really trust, as I said, people are really trusting you to express um their emotions to the people that they care most about. And so they care very much about um, their purchase, despite it being relatively inexpensive. And if they're thrilled with it, you hear from them. And if they're disappointed with it, you hear from them as well. And for me, that's really motivating because I'm very motivated and driven by that praise, as is all of my team. And uh, I take the feedback really personally when it's negative or disappointing and really want to understand why something happened and address the root cause of it. And I think as I thought about what I would start doing, that those things made me feel like the flower industry would be worth dedicating years of life to. Brilliant. Uh, and I, I think it's absolutely genius. I, I mean, I, I'm a longstanding customer. I, I bought a subscription for my wife for her birthday. It's brought joy to a lot of my family and friends over the years, especially in lockdown. So I think it's just, it's, it's fantastic. It's great to understand a little bit more about the, the thinking behind it and, 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 and why the, t- the timing was right. If you'll excuse the pun, I'm sure it hasn't been a bed of roses all, all the way. Tell us a little bit about that first six to 12 months of, of setting up the business. How, how did you get it off the ground? And what were some of the early challenges that you had to overcome? So I guess to begin with, we didn't know anything about flowers. We rented space by the hour in New Covent Garden flower market. Um, it was uh, sort of winter at the time and uh, a lot of businesses there are wedding florists. And so it was relatively quiet. And we'd literally 
and go around the various stalls and uh, ask the traders there what the names of flowers were and write them down. And, you know, I think they thought we were crazy and had no idea what we were doing, um, which we didn't. And we basically tried to make a database of um, all of the different types of flowers and how long they lasted uh, and what format we'd be able to send them. Um, And it was just such a sort of different approach to um, floristry to what anybody else had done. Um, But um, there were lots of setbacks. We needed to figure out the right shape of box to start with. We tried to buy boxes from Ryman's and then we realized that probably wasn't going to to scale. And so we uh, personally measured... um, you know, thousands of letter boxes to try and figure out what the right size of box was, which was, um, you know, quite an experience. Um, I got caught on several doorsteps with a ruler and a notebook. Um, and, um, you know, our initial box, probably the biggest early setback was that the initial box was um, turned out not to be suitable. So we were buying boxes one at a time as samples um, from a supplier in Southeast London, and they were pretty expensive. They, he was charging us about £30 per prototype box. Um, and um, we said, could you do them cheaper? And he said, well, if you buy more of them, then, you know, it'd be cheaper per box. So we agreed to buy a thousand boxes for £2.70 per box each, so £2,700 total. Um, and we thought this was a great idea. This was when we were um, funding the business, you know, bootstrap from our savings. And we we sent out 20 of these boxes as a trial to people who we'd uh, sort of asked to sign up and express an interest in the business. Um, and then we called them up to see what they thought of uh, the flowers. And all 20 of them said that the flowers had a sort of strange reddish brown mold on them. And it turned out that this was a, a disease called botrytis, which can form on certain types of flowers when they don't have um, enough ventilation. And we'd made our thousand boxes without any form of ventilation, which meant that the remaining 980 were completely useless. Um, and that was a significant part of our savings. So I, I guess there's... Uh, there's a lot of learning from that, but yeah, that was probably the biggest initial setback. Interesting. And I've spoken to a few founders recently. Do you miss those early days? We had James Hine from Carwell on recently, and I know he stuck his mobile phone on when he first started Carwell and was taking customer calls and orders and you know connecting uh, to, to different suppliers. Do you miss that going around measuring post boxes and things like that? Do you miss that stage? Now you're you know over 100 people, over 100 million raised. Do you ever get that kind of longing for those early scrappy days? I think I'm still pretty scrappy. But, you know, and try to be really sort of um, focused on the details and how we can change things through details. So um, in a way, I haven't really left them behind. But, you know, it's also like super hard work at the beginning. It's hard work now, but um, there's just more things to do than you can possibly fit in. And it's amazing to now be able to attract people that can that can really help us, you know, along the way with our journey. So yeah, I sort of I, I think I enjoy this phase more than uh, more than the very beginning because it's just frustrating. There are so many things you want to do, and people sort of try to helpfully give you feedback. You know, have you thought of X, Y, and Z? And it's just you know like item like four hundred on your list of things that you thought of, but you don't have like the time or the know how or the the funds to be able to to sort out and. Um, yeah, yeah, I I I, t- I totally get that. Look, you've you've successfully disrupted this traditional industry i mean which is quite incredible really from your experience what specific advice do you have to any d2c or startup founders that might be listening to this that have kind of bold aspirations to do similar sort of be similarly disruptive but in a different category i think people should should give it a go i think i could have started sooner but i was worried about what if it didn't work and what would happen career-wise but i think there's benefit in um, 
in trying. And I think if it doesn't work out, then you've had a, a richer experience. You've learned more earlier in your career. You're probably more employable and have more options open to you than if you stay in whatever you're doing before for another year. And um, so that bias to action is really valuable. I think in the UK, sometimes we can be, um, you know, afraid of failure and therefore um, sort of not launch into things that we might do. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people to to try it out and, um, you know, give it everything, but be prepared for it not to work, but see that as a, a positive learning experience rather than a failure. You know, and I guess like we've gone through a really difficult um, time economically at the moment, but there's also been a huge shift to people doing things digitally and online. So with that comes um, a lot of opportunity for innovation and, and setting up new stuff. You know, and a lot of people through no fault of their own are having to figure out new career paths now. And um, it feels like a great time to, to try and set something up that is, um, you know, online or, or tech first, because, you know, the world's obviously moved massively in that direction over the last year. And it feels like, um, you know, much of that is here to stay. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's interesting. And I know you spent some time over in, in the US. It's it's almost failure is almost seen as a badge of honor over there, isn't it, when it comes to entrepreneurial ventures? And I totally agree. I think, you know, it, this is a, as good a time as any to give things a, a whirl. And I've always seen, you know, when we're looking at working with clients, often that a failure is is seen as something that you can learn the most from so there's sometimes not always this there's not always the downsides that people associate with it plenty of learnings as well but i wanted to come on to uh, the fundraising because that's obviously a part of this this process of building a scale up and and you've successfully raised over 100 million dollars from leading vcs including a series d round of 75 million pounds yesterday i think it was announced so huge congratulations on that Going back a little bit, what were the hurdles you faced in the early days of trying to raise capital? Because I, I, you mentioned you you bootstrapped the business initially, which sounded like there were some, some costly um, learnings along the way there. But how did you go about raising funds? And again, do you have any advice for first-time founders that are going through that process for the first time now? Yeah, so um, we began by trying to reach out to basically anybody we'd ever come across professionally who we thought had a well-paid job and might want to make um, angel investments. And we became aware of the Enterprise Investment Scheme EIS program and the SEIS program as well, um, which allows angel investors to make um, investments into early stage companies with um, tax breaks if they don't work out. And so this was... um, sort of a really good thing to know about and to be able to say when pitching investors because um, there was basically a, you know, much less risk for them if it didn't work out. And and so, you know, armed with our, our knowledge of that scheme, we, we basically tried to speak to anybody in our direct or indirect network that might have been interested in, in backing an online business. And that went well to begin with. And I guess because we both worked in sort of businessy type jobs before my co-founder and I had also felt like I guess we you know we had come across people professionally that were interested in making these sorts of investments so that turned out to be an early advantage but I think there's um, there are a lot of people out there that want to make um, you know SEIS and EIS qualifying angel investments so that was the beginning bit. I think um, in hindsight, as we um, we were a couple of years in, we could have probably, you know, been more aggressive about how much money we were raising and, um, you know, with a view to accelerating faster and, and seizing the opportunity more quickly. And I think um, 
there's this underlying tension between um, how much money are you going to raise and uh, I guess, you know, in doing so lose versus how quickly you're going to grow. And we always felt that we would try to raise as little as possible to get to profitability at um, like the next scale stage. And if we'd perhaps acknowledged that, um, that we weren't going to do that and we were going to, to try and be more ambitious and um, so more ambitious isn't the right word, but if we try to lean into really getting bigger faster and accept that that would uh, result in losing a bit more money, but would um, might have got to where we're trying to get to more quickly, I think we could have um, probably, uh, you know, gone through those middle phases a year or so more quickly. And um, I think when I look at US entrepreneurs, they're perhaps more prepared to, to take that risk, maybe because there's more competition around, you know, it's a, a bigger market, but then uh, more other people trying to do the same thing. So you sort of need to move faster than everybody else and um, for people moving you know into that year two or three and um, that would be my advice based on what we might have done differently that's great advice and, and and a really interesting insight for anyone that might be going through that process at the moment thank you and we know that funding is often used as a uh, to ramp up hiring top talent which is crucial to to business growth you've scaled the team to, to over 100 people now what for you have been the secrets to your hiring success because i know firsthand it's it's not as easy a process as uh, people think it is we've had a pretty in-depth interview process from the beginning everybody meets a lot of people and we give every, any participant in the interview process a veto and i think that's really valuable for kind of maintaining culture and making sure that we're hiring people that people want to work with. And we really prioritize um, kindness, attitude, and somebody who we, people who we think will um, sort of adhere to our values, which we, uh, I can come on to those if interesting, and sort of be somebody that everybody else wants to work with. And this doesn't mean we're all similar people, but we all have a similar ethos and mindset behaviorally for you know how to treat others with kindness and respect and it, it sort of results in a culture where which is not political there isn't an edge people are, are kind rather than unkind to each other and i think that makes it a, a place that it's a real joy to work at obviously we you know we look for specific skills and um, related to what the function in question is and what the person needs to do and um, but that's maybe less insightful but i think this um, sort of really feeling comfortable that people you know will be kind to each other has been so important and i i absolutely love that and and you touched upon culture there it's it's so important to to candidates to to get that right and and i think you know when we're talking to people sort of on a daily basis it's one of the first things they'll they'll think about um so so how would you describe bloom and wild's culture and, and how easy is that to maintain as you scale at the pace you are so I mentioned kindness, I think. Um, I'd also mention our values. We have five values, care, pride, delight, customers first and innovation, which we co-created as a team over five years ago now. And um, we've not changed them. They've been really central to how we do business. And I think having a um, a really clear set of ways of working like that is um, super important. So that's been central to it. And then... Um, I think as a result of of some of those building blocks, uh, people seem to really enjoy working together. People have good relationships. People enjoy each other's time, uh, spending time with each other socially. Um, Obviously, that's been more challenging over the last year. I think people, um, you know, uh, enjoy their work and and work hard, but they, um, we don't have a sort of FaceTime culture or long hours or anything like that. And we, we do really try to prioritize giving people a great employee experience. We measure 
employee NPS, um, you know, uh, routinely and regularly in the same way that we measure customer and recipient NPS. And I think the result is that we've had, you know, almost nobody over the years um, leave the business sort of unwantedly. And, you know, we have a group of people that um, that really care about and are excited about what we're doing and are really loyal to each other and to, to our company. That's incredible. You, you've talked about there's the emphasis of spreading joy and, and caring for others, which I think is, is, is such a lovely sentiment. How does that manifest itself you know, internally, but also with your customers? Because it's something that I, I think I felt as a customer, but I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, so I guess we, we define our mission as making, uh, sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be. Um, and everybody knows that that's the case. And as a result of that, it feels like people are brought into it and people are looking for ways to, to make that the case. That could be our customer delight team trying to really give people the best possible experience. It can be people who are involved in, you know, digital or physical product design. Um, it can be people who write copy. I think everybody is thinking about how can we make this brilliant rather than just so-so. And, um, you know, that standard and, and desire to please, which... Um, yeah, I try to set the tone on because it's important for me personally, I think, permeates through our organization. Yeah, fantastic. And some of the customers, and I, I read about this and I, I've received an email, uh, some of your customers expressed concerns about being contacted on certain days of the year, like Mother's Day and Father's Day, especially if they've lost relatives. So can you tell us a little bit about your thoughtful marketing movement, sort of what inspired it and what difference has that made to your business? Of course. So back in 2018 now, Mother's Day is obviously a big time of the year for us from a trading perspective. We got a few emails from customers um, in response to our Mother's Day marketing email saying, you know, um, do you mind not emailing me for Mother's Day? It's a sensitive time for me. So we said, sure. And we, you know, made a, a small database of people and um, that preferred not to be emailed. We stopped emailing them about um Mother's Day, and then we um, resumed emailing them once Mother's Day had passed. And, you know, there were a handful of people and they, they appreciated it. So then in 2019, um, we thought maybe we should automate this process. And we came up with um, the opt-out idea. And we basically sent an email at the start of Mother's Day season saying, we're going to be sending emails about Mother's Day. If you'd rather not hear from us, then click this link and we'll um, not email you and then we'll resume emailing you once Mother's Day's passed. And then we thought, you know, maybe a few more people click it, it'll be a bit easier to manage. And we had 17,000 people um, opt out for Mother's Day, um, which is far more than we expected, including lots of journalists who organically wrote about it, influencers, and um, it really took off. And we were really um, you know, blown away by how much this meant to people. And it felt like exactly the right way of doing business because um, it was customer first, which was one of our values and was the right thing for people. It made good business sense because instead of people being annoyed with Bloom and Wild, they perceived us positively. They probably wouldn't have ordered anyway during Mother's Day. So we weren't losing anything by not emailing them, but they may well have unsubscribed from our database, which instead they didn't. And it just felt like the right way to do business. And so um, in 2020, as Mother's Day was approaching, we said to ourselves, can we make this experience even better? And so we did two things. We made it firstly, not just email, but a, a fully end-to-end opt-out experience. So people would not see any mention of Mother's Day products. They wouldn't see Mother's Day items on our app or website or um, or navigation. They wouldn't see Mother's Day Facebook ads, um, et cetera. And it was um, a really sort of 
holistic experience, which was um, really valuable. And I think people uh, felt like we were really going the extra mile beyond what we'd already done. And then additionally, we we set up the Thoughtful Marketing Movement, which basically was um, a way of uh, making the tools and learnings that we had available around Thoughtful Marketing um, available to other companies. And we had over 100 other companies sign up. Um, And so we feel like we've not just made a difference to our customers, but also to the approach that businesses take to marketing around sensitive occasions. And um, we're thrilled to be able to do that. I think it's just wonderful. And the the fact that you're giving back to other companies and helping them with your own learnings, I think speaks volumes in terms of the sorts of values driven business you are. So congratulations on on doing such brilliant work in that respect. I know that different companies have been affected in very, very different ways from the pandemic. And in in, in many ways, I think Blue Wild has probably been one of the successful companies in this space. Uh, and, and I've seen lots of friends and family replace hugs and FaceTime with flowers. And and, and, and that's brought a lot of joy. But it'd be good just to, for our listeners to understand a bit about the, the, the past year, how you've handled it, what, what have been the, the biggest learnings for you as an entrepreneur and sort of how the company's done? Yeah, so look, I guess we've been, we've been incredibly fortunate to be able to continue and um, are trading during this period. And we're well aware that many companies haven't. Um, it's something that we feel a lot of responsibility for. So we thought about that in terms of um, community and charity partnerships. We immediately set up a partnership with the, the National Emergencies Trust and um, Coronavirus Appeal. Um, and we're able to donate over £200,000, which we raised with our customers to them. We extended our staff discount to all frontline workers um, over lockdown and gave away discounts of um, £2 million um, as a result of that. And I think contributions like that made a big difference. But it's also an internal piece as well. Like it's, a you know, people are lucky to, you know, still have a job at a company that's, um, you know, been able to continue to operate but it's also a very stressful time for people and you know from a health perspective from you know being worried about uh, friends and family you know health-wise economically etc and it was really important to us to try and create the the best and most caring um, employee experience and put a number of measures in place to sort of keep people's spirits up try to you know invest in mental health provisions um, etc and i think you know while this remains a difficult time for everybody, I think um, people feel that we as a company have done everything we can to help people navigate it. And, you know, in longer term, we've, um, like everybody, we've learned to work remotely, but um, rather than seeing this as like uh, an inconvenience, I think we, we're really pleased with, um, you know, with how well it's worked. And it's something that will um, continue to make part of our ways of working. I don't know, we won't go 100% remote, but we will be remote friendly in many ways um, going forward. And um, we see that as, um, you know, a positive and which means that it will be advantageous in terms of attracting and retaining great people who maybe don't want to, you know, be in an office in central London five days a week. Yeah. And it's wonderful to hear such, such uh, positivity coming from a, a leader in this time and, uh, and to see the benefits of, of, and the learnings from that experience. I'm sure people will, will really appreciate that. Before we get onto our, our wrap up questions, Aaron, um, and I've, I've really enjoyed our chat. I just wanted to touch upon family life because I know like me, you have a, a young family and, and I wondered, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs at the moment that, that struggle to find that balance with running a business and scaling a business, uh, especially, you know, in, 
in your situation. I just I wondered if you had any pointers for anyone that that, that you know that has their own baby, their business, and maybe uh, actual babies. How have you found the balancing of that, and particularly over the last kind of year that we've lived in various lockdowns? Yeah, so I have uh, I have two young daughters and a wife that works full time. So you know, there, there's lots to juggle. In a way, um, you know, my wife was on maternity leave for um, for much of the year, so we we're fortunate, uh, you know, with the timing of the first lockdown. And others will have had like more challenging time trying to sort of homeschool children, um, you know, while working full time, things like that. And so we. Um, we know that we're fortunate in so many ways. I guess, you know, maybe the flip side of this, though, is there's a lot of stuff that you don't do. Um, you don't go out in the evenings anymore. You don't spend time commuting. Um, and that does create more time for family time. I think um, companies have learned to be more flexible about when people get their work done. And the fact that people aren't going into an office means that, you know, there's inherent additional flexibility as long as you know, people are well planned and stuff like that. And I think some of those things have made it a little bit easier. And they're things that we've tried to embrace as a company. And I hope we'll be able to to continue to embrace, you know, post COVID and you know, whatever the world looks like uh, thereafter. Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think I'm the same from somebody that, that missed most meals with my uh, five-year-old. I, I'm now at all of them, which I don't know if she's that appreciative of anymore. She's probably, the novelty's worn off, but <laughs> I certainly uh, get a lot from it. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, we've got three final wrap-up questions, quick questions that we like to ask all our guests. The first one is probably not unsurprisingly about mentorship, something I've benefited from greatly and, you know, really advocate. Have you got a mentor or mentor and if so, how have they helped you on your career journey? Yeah, I had a wonderful chairman for three years, Gwyn Jones, um, who was with us from mid-2017 until mid-2020, which was the sort of three-year term that we agreed. And um, we've uh, we've remained close even as he stepped down from his former role. And he's certainly been a, a mentor figure um, to me and, and will continue to be. In addition, um, I'm part of a... Um, a group of nine founder CEOs, and we um, we meet monthly now, obviously remotely, in a sort of super supportive and confidential environment to try and um, share our experiences and help each other out. And that sort of uh, group mentorship and support has been, you know, something that I think we've all appreciated and got a lot out of. So um, I'd encourage people to to form groups like that as well. It's been one of the best things I've done. Oh, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And what does the rest of 2021 and beyond hold? Obviously, you've you've raised some fantastic investment recently um, and, and it sounds like business is booming. So we'd love to learn a bit about that. And, and also for you personally, what are your aspirations for the year ahead? Of course. So from a work perspective, our goal really with this funding and where we really want to accelerate in 2021 is taking that experience that we've um, formed in the UK and um, building something similar in, in other countries, countries which we've already started to build our business in, like Germany and France, and then further countries that we've not entered yet. So that will really be our number one focus for the business this year. And then um, from a personal perspective, you know, like many of us, I hope uh, to see life return more to normal. Um, my parents both live uh, overseas in Israel, so um, I'd like to take my daughters there and, um, and have some time um, you know, with their family and meet relatives and things like that. And, um, you know, similar with my wife who's from Scotland. And so, um, you know, I think like many of us just hope that um, a combination of uh, vaccinations and, you know, 
to other health measures mean that we can um, get back to a more normal world and um, enjoy all of the things that we, we used to take for granted. Absolutely. I think everyone listening to this will share that hope. Fingers crossed it won't be too long now. And final question, Aaron, for anyone listening to this, thinking about a big career move, it might be setting up a, a business like Bloom & Wild. What one piece of advice would you give them before they take that leap of faith? I think, you know, perfect can be the enemy of good or perfect can be the enemy of done. And, and don't uh, leave it too long because you're worried about um, trying to sort of perfect the idea or, you know, every last detail before you start so much changes um, between starting and, um, you know, as you go along anyway, that I think just um, having that biased action to get started is, um, is a really important part of it. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story. Incredibly inspiring. And myself and the team at JBM wish you all the very best for the year ahead. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see where the business goes. Thank you. Thanks very much. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support. This episode is brought to you by JBM SOS, a new on-demand talent solution for VC and PE-backed startups and scale-ups. SOS gives clients access to a pool of over 200 high-profile scale-up COOs, GMs, and ops strategy consultants on an interim or project basis. So, if you're a founder or investor looking for fast access to world-class talent to help you execute and scale at pace, let our JBM SOS team be your partner in growth. To learn more, get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk.